0: Mhm. <laughs> uh tell me the artist.
1: Ariana Grande.
0: Oh no, I'll never know this. Never? Never.
1: It's Thank You Next. It was like the most popular song in like the world, if you There's
0: first. a chance I would know it like on the radio like, "Oh yeah, that song." That happens Thank a lot. Thank
1: You Next. Thank You Next. Also, it's a very formative <laughs>
0: What year did it come out?
1: Like um, 2019.
0: Oh, so recently.
1: Yeah, like the spring. It was like January. Oh, no. I'm now
0: convinced I don't know it.
1: Oh, okay. I was just listening to it in the car.
0: You know, it is a fascinating way that the world has changed with podcasts and digital in our phones in that I never, well, first of all, I only turn on NPR. But um, right. I'm in a car is when I would get new songs And I don't ever tune into radio like The
1: anymore, radio Me neither. Where I would... Well that is the thing Like the, you know the Grammys were last night Oh yeah And so much of the music um, I didn't watch them But I went and looked at who won And so much of who won And also so much of like um, The people who were nominated I thought I have never heard of this person
0: Oh that's one of the ways you know you're aging Oh it is? Yeah, that happens with me in pop culture all the time. I have
1: officially... um, Is this like
0: a... Hold on. Is this a music video?
1: Thank you, next. Definitely.
0: Is this it? Yeah. Never. Explicit? I don't know. No, it is. I've never heard this song in my life. But I do know that that Grande is a very popular person.
1: She is, yeah. Like
0: when I looked at most Twitter and Instagram followers... She's up there with, like, Barack Obama and Donald Trump. Really? Yeah, she's a she gets some followers for sure. Wow. Can you imagine being that popular? Literally, no. I think that's what happens for threes that die and go to heaven.
1: I don't...
0: You get 110 million Instagram followers? I
1: don't think so. Oh, okay. Pretty firm on a no for that one for me. <laughs> um, no, I literally can't. But this is, like, we talked about a few weeks ago. Yeah. Like, I'm not crowds are not my purview do you know what i'm saying like the masses are not really my thing i
0: love the masses
1: no (laughs) it's not that i'm not into them but it's like i know that i have a distinctly different pull like one-on-one with a person oh yeah we taught
0: this is the enneagram thing yeah no the the masses are just impersonal enough and um Mm -hmm. intoxicating enough for me to love them Mm
1: -hmm. no i love them i just um i know i don't do anything for them They don't oh, love me
0: Oh yeah well probably That's true of all threes too But we are That's where we really are Kind of blind to ourselves Is we think They're there for through. us <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: That's like most of everything Is just like pushing through Hey um,
0: Yeah I have something That is so dumb Okay But I've been hanging on it For three weeks And I don't know why I'm so excited about to it To
1: talk about it on the podcast
0: It's really just like a I'm gonna pitch a little It's almost like a jingle
1: Okay Okay, okay yeah Well
0: um, Do you remember that song Hey, Geronimo! Hey, hey, Geronimo! Do you remember this? It was like I don't even know years ago.
1: Yeah, barely, but yeah.
0: Was it like a movie?
1: I don't. I don't really. I'm um, hey, my brain's like Geronimo. barely doing hey.
0: it. Well, I just so I know that you love that that writer on Twitter, shay Serrano. <laughs> yeah. So guess what I've been singing for you.
1: Uh, <laughs> hey, shay Serrano.
0: shay Serrano. shay <laughs> shay Serrano. shay Serrano. Isn't that great?
1: Yes. Do you want to hear about a good thing he did recently?
0: Uh, I think I remember seeing this But I don't remember what it was Go ahead
1: um, He is so great He's always like Like he'll write a short story And he'll put it on the internet For people to to buy for like five dollars um, And then Okay so what has happened Is like that's what he did mm-hmm. With the short story called Angel And um, he put it on the internet And then his wife is currently In grad school at UTSA For like mental health counseling
0: Wait he lives in Texas
1: He lives in San Antonio. He's from San Antonio. Where does he teach? He is not a teacher. He is a writer. He was a teacher.
0: Okay. How big of a deal is he?
1: A pretty big deal. At this point, he has three number one like New York Times bestsellers. That's a big deal. Yeah. Okay. Um and then his Twitter reach is pretty prolific. Uh but he will always do this where he'll like write something short and sell it for not very much money. And then raise a bunch of do- dollars, and then like so on Friday, he announced, him and his wife Laramie, who is so cool, had um, set up a twenty thousand dollar scholarship at UTSA for like um, black students interested interested in studying mental health from mm. the proceeds of like this short story that he just sold. Wow! And was promoting. And he'll always be like, "And you didn't even know that—that's what you're paying for. You're so stupid." <laughs> <laughs> and it's like one of my favorite things that he does.
0: Well, that's cool. Yeah. Well, a couple of things have happened in the week, the two weeks, because we didn't we didn't podcast last week. Did I was you, on the spring break. Spring break, yeah. I was at the Jellystone.
1: Yeah. How was that?
0: Um, it was great for our kids.
1: That's good.
0: <laughs> and I love my family, so it was great for me. So it
1: was good. Yeah.
0: Yeah. There you go. Um, first of all, Governor Abbott issued an order to rescind the the masks. Yes. Which, I'll say this, um, I have, in Waco, where I have been, two qualifiers, most people seem to be still wearing their masks. Yeah. Most I've been people. proud. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, I saw two doctors say oh, okay. that um, despite the fact that this is happening, because of who's been pop vaccinated, I think I told you this, yes. the l- numbers will still likely go down. Which, I'm, you know, silver lining. That is not me endorsing getting rid of a mask, by the way. But that's just me being like, you know what, there's still hope.
1: Right, yeah, that's not you saying like don't wear your mask anywhere. That's just you saying like maybe we can still make it through this. We can
0: still do it. Yeah. So that happened. That's my little. Bit. Okay. The other thing that happened in big news is the royal family. Mm. I know you're passionate about this.
1: Surprisingly, even to myself, I am passionate about this.
0: Yeah, I didn't realize the whole race context until I started digging in it. I listened to the um, the Diana Megan Daily. They did like a thirty five minute segment. Mm. And I don't think I was aware of the whole mental health history thing with Princess Diana and the royal family and all that stuff.
1: Oh, yeah. That was like her major. So
0: now the story is very much more eerie.
1: Yeah. Well, and for Harry, it's like he watched his mother, especially be like followed and sort of overwhelmed, engulfed by the press. And then, like, also, that is how she died. Yeah. Because she was being chased by. Photographers And um, And then yeah And also she had she was very open and honest About her mental health struggles Which the Royal family did not really like mm-hmm. But now both Harry And William have taken it up As like a um,
0: Well there you go. at least William's in on that Yeah um, I, Yeah I, I Here was my initial thoughts My initial thoughts was this is so dumb. The monarchy is so dumb. Why does anybody care about this? Mm. And then I got into the, the race relations stuff that I didn't know. I'm like, oh, yeah. this is matters a little more. If yeah. they want to be a public figure, then you certainly have to be willing to address these things. Yeah. So.
1: And, like, at the very least, like, this is, like, not even asking any, like, more morality of them, but, like, adapt socially. Right. Like,
0: Here's another thing. This is terrible. This okay. is just terrible. Okay. This is coming from my low brain or however that works. Okay. <laughs> There's part of me like, at least it's not America that's racist this time. <laughs> oh <my gosh. laughs>
1: I do know this. It's like, we're so yeah. embarrassing that when it's not us, I'm kind uh, of like, Whew, geez, okay. We, you know, we. Yeah. Didn't. but also it's like someone probably is like, no, we are involved somehow. Yeah. I will say I just put it up, but um, one of my favorite tweets. From last week was um, a tweet that said that it was like England is trending from Twitter. England is trending in Massachusetts, and somebody had like um, taken a picture and said historically very bad for England, and I thought that was really (laughs) funny.
0: Yeah, I saw somebody else right away before I knew what was going on. Like this, this is the second time that uh, America will overthrow England by the spilling of tea or something. Because I I guess. (laughs)
1: yeah I do think And it is one of those things where it's like Actually you know it's like Like you said I know it's bad because it's like I'm like thank god it's, it's somebody else Because I'm like It's England dealing with like their racism But I know that it's like that's Because it's like sometimes I get tired of dealing with Racism in America and I'm like wow What a white person reaction to sure. Like something
0: Other news Taylor Yeah. Um, do you see that the Cowboys signed Dak Prescott To a 40 million dollar year deal
1: Yes, I definitely saw that. Do you think
0: that's worth the investment? I do. I think it was smart to get him. Yeah. Um, I am a little concerned about the injury. Sure. But way to honor a guy, you know? Yeah. But here's my deal. Like, he's now, I think, the second highest paid quarterback. He deserves it. The market is just out of control.
1: You think so? Well,
0: because now everybody, every quarterback that's better than him, those franchises have to sign their quarterbacks for more money.
1: They're not better than him.
0: Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> You think Dak is the second best quarterback in the NFL, or do you think he's the best?
1: Mm, he's certainly the best person in the NFL.
0: All right. Well, there's that. <laughs> I think that conversation's over. <laughs> okay. Hey, I have um, a couple of things to get through. Okay, great. They're all cultural. They're a little bit spicy.
1: Ooh.
0: Uh, I don't know that there's wisdom in bringing all of them up. Here's okay. here's one that I, I'm confident about. So, so I What watch, are we
1: going to do that, though? What? Bring them all up? I think so. Okay. So
0: uh, the first one's Moxie I watched. Oh, yeah. It was great.
1: Yeah, I watched it on Friday or Saturday night.
0: And I think insofar what it accomplished or set out to address is a, a plot about uh, feminism and women's rights and really the the predicament of the um, uh, the teenage young woman. Sure,
1: yeah, definitely. I, th- I think
0: it nailed all that. That's great. Okay. Which that was the point of the movie. So let me yeah. celebrate that.
1: Okay.
0: Um, we are at this interesting point in culture where I'm, I'm curious about... Our What I'll call Idiosyncratic Approach to ethics And I'm very much aware That some of this Has to do with My Zenial worldview And how it is different Than those behind me We've talked about this Mm -hmm. I was a little surprised That this movie Which was So consciously About a very real Social issue Slash I think Health issue In a way okay? Okay And the framing Will make sense In a second Was still very casual About Teenagers consuming alcohol And that wasn't Like a big deal but, um, and I was torn because I'm like so many,
1: you mean like like in that one scene?
0: Well, there's two different scenes where it's just like, Hey, we have whatever this alcohol and then ha ha.
1: What was, yeah. I remember the one at the football field where she throws up. Yeah.
0: And then there's another scene where they like, Oh, when she goes to the party. She brings a bottle of wine. And you know, I think back to like, who was the eighties filmmaker? Um, that's so famous. John Hughes. Yeah. Johnny. I mean, just like the reality is teens drink. Yeah. For the most part.
1: Okay, yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. And the reality is, um, that's the culture. But I thought, since this movie is being so thoughtful about this other thing, Mm -hmm. it's just odd to me that we're still sort of subversively blessing teens consuming alcohol.
1: I will say, uh, I hardly noticed the party thing. Because I do think that's like, at this point, it's just like, Teenagers are going to drink, and I thought it was cute that she like brought this bottle of wine. as like a party favor. The bottle of champagne at the football field. None of this, for the record, is like spoilery. Exactly. No, I don't think so. Um, I was kind of like, what? Like she's gonna get in trouble. You can't just take bottles of alcohol. I mean, actually, I'm in Texas at least. I think like. You cannot take alcohol into a like school. public school football stadium. No, at all. not at
0: all. No. no, you can't have it on the premises. I don't think.
1: Yeah, and I'd imagine the same is true in California or wherever they were, and maybe not. Um, and yeah, maybe not the Bible Belt. I don't know. You know. I mean, I
0: guess I just was surprised that it was normalizing it in a way.
1: Well, I don't think it was normalizing it because that was a part of the movie where she was like. Starting That's to true. sort of like spiral out of That's control That's
0: true Because I, let me frame it this way If it seems a little legalistic on my part It probably is But like you know evangelicals for a while Were having this debate about like You're so obsessed with porn That you don't even pay attention to Kids exposure to violence um, Which I think is a fair point But I do think that um, the consumption of alcohol And the misuse of alcohol Can be detrimental And especially if you develop those patterns Very early on in life And I again just because it was a a issue-conscious movie. Maybe I'm making too much of this. I don't know why I was struck.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, it was weird. Well, I wonder if it is the age of your children that is one of the things that is concerning to you. It's like, she's not much older than, say, Roy. Right. And it's like, if Roy came home in four years and threw up everywhere because he'd been drinking, I just, I'm sure that would be a shock, like, reasonably so. And, um which is not to say, I mean. But, um but I do think... I do think we were supposed to see that as a sign of like she's Unhealth. not making good choices yeah Yeah. and um, in fact that's where I thought the scene was going I was she like popped that bottle of champagne at the football game you know and um, then uh, but also I think that I mean some of the most compelling research to me is that kids who grow up with casual relationships to alcohol are not that tempted at a party to, like, get super drunk. Or, like, you know, like, um, in countries where kids begin consuming alcohol, like, with their parents at younger ages, I mean, they still go on to, like, go party or whatever, but then as adults they aren't necessarily, like, trapped in cycles of... Um, Addiction in the way that like sometimes kids who grew up being told that it was like the worst thing they could do are hmm. I don't know if that Yeah, is compelling or makes any sense.
0: I just I think I remember too, a doctor one time talking about the percentages of alcohol problems related to how early you start drinking because of brain formation. And it really is staggering. like if you can hold off from 18 to like even 21 or you know the chances of your problems with alcohol go way up if you start earlier and earlier. Um, and I just think, well, if we're having issues, this is a real issue too.
1: Yeah, that's interesting to me. I would like to see that data. Okay. I like. I will, I, I will fact check. I don't necessarily.
0: And maybe I'll be wrong.
1: Well, maybe that doctor will be wrong.
0: So, okay, I have more of of this. Okay, great. Um, okay, I, I this is incomplete. This is like I took notes right before we got here, and so I I don't want to put myself in a bad spot. This is me just processing out loud. Okay, great. So I saw. Um, Right before we got on That um, Craig Nash had posted A Facebook post about um, Cancel culture And if you would have thought A month ago Yada yada Two things canceled Were Mr. Potato Head And then Pepe Le Pew Is Pepe Le Pew
1: canceled? Well
0: I hadn't seen anything about this Okay And I had time to research But I thought about it And I'm like oh I can get this It's because his character is Like forces himself Onto that other skunk all the time Oh yeah Which Given The the current climate of problems That actually Of all the things We might look at canceling so far Might be legitimate, right? Yeah, sure. Um, But here's, I think, my question. Okay. Dr. Seuss, um, Pepe Le Pew, Mister Potato Head, et cetera, et cetera.
2: Okay.
0: Um, I am an amalgamation of all these things. I was exposed to all these, and right, these are part of my thing growing up. And I'm wondering um, what their contributions were to the concerns people are having with them. Do you know what I mean?
1: What their contributions were like
0: did I I mean the Mr. Potato Head. Well this is removed.
1: again Dr. Seuss did not get cancelled.
0: Um sure.
1: The Doctor Seuss estate pulled those books.
0: Yes. But yeah, uh things in our culture that are being looked at with scrutiny. I don't know if that a word to say it, better way to say it.
1: No <laughs>
0: <laughs> Okay. Frame it for um, me.
1: No, uh, no. I, we ha- if we're going to talk about cancel culture, and I do... Well, like-
0: take cancel culture out of it. Okay, That was great. just the thing. I, I I'm not for or against cancel culture.
1: Okay, but... Okay. <laughs> you- in this...
0: Con- I'm, what I'm saying is that's not my point in bringing this in up. In this
1: conversation. However, yeah. it is a part of... Like, I do think we need to be careful about the way we talk about cancel culture, because people are often using that to condemn, like, a general social... Vibe right now that is sometimes about holding people accountable, and so that is just most of the time, almost all of the time, about holding people accountable, and so yeah, and so yeah, so anyways, anyways, that doesn't have to be the point of this conversation, but like I do, yeah, I think I'm getting more um have. Developing a more Strangent feeling towards like the use of the word and term in general.
0: Maybe we could do another episode on cancer yes, culture. we definitely can. because I, I don't know that I followed everything you just said, but okay. So, um, uh, these things I'm trying to navigate this now without.
1: Yeah, we're so we're taking that term off the that, table. That yeah,
0: that we are looking at culturally right now uh-huh. happen to all be things from my childhood. Sure. A toy, a book series. A cartoon character Uh uh-huh um i am wondering like the amalgamation of these things i think inadvertently made me the person i am like right like certainly formed you. but like i wonder does does expressing concern about these are is this going to accomplish what we hope which my children are going to be better off because they're not exposed to these uh things does it make sense like i guess it's a way does this stuff make a difference
1: I do think some of it does. I mean, like, those Dr. Seuss books normalize racist language. Yeah, I do
0: think the Dr. Seuss books for sure are the most, um, needs the most attention in my mind.
1: Yeah, but even Pepe Le Pew, like, the idea that it's okay for anyone, you know, put yeah. gender aside, to, like, force their affection on someone else. And then also, um, what was it Mr. Potato Head that you said? Yeah. Well, I do think that I was just talking to someone about this, like, like, I think when I came to seminary, I still was, I had been very formed by the idea that women couldn't be senior pastors. And I was already beginning to say, like, why do I think that? Like, I have, I've heard no compelling, like, thoughtful argument for that. It's just like, you know, through all of seminary, I thought, like, what do I want to be? I don't know. And it wasn't until sort of that last semester that I thought, I do think eventually I would like to be, like, a senior preaching pastor in a church. But it's like, I had, coming into seminary, I was 25, I had no imagination for that. I could not imagine myself being a senior pastor at a church because i had never seen it mm-hmm. and so i do think some of the like ungendering of toys and stuff like that is like at the very least it gives girls an opportunity to see potentially themselves but also at least like that women can do certain like certain things that maybe they've never seen in real life but that it's like oh i had a doll one time that was da-da-da-da-da.
0: yeah i think that's a really good answer um, about the um, about the shaping of the imagination and how we're how cues give us permission to think about certain things in culture I suspect then conversely the problem with my question is it's really difficult to detect retrospectively how narratives informed your imagination because you just are who you are and there's a million things that pour into that it's
1: hard to pick it out like you can't go through with a fine tooth comb or something
0: well and I would think about too the Disney thing I can imagine um, you know, we talked about Dumbo and some of these things that are, you know, racist. Yeah. And, you know, being a, a child of a BIPOC person, a BIPOC child and watching yeah. these things and how that would normalize um it creep in on the imagination and yeah. So
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Anyhow, I mean I just think too though, like I this is it's gonna be far reaching. Yeah. Like we're just gonna keep realizing more and more and more how much
1: well yeah and this is one of those things where it's like i do think you know people of color are not they already know do you know what i mean yeah like it's surprising it will be surprising to us as like sort of very privileged heteronormative white people that like there were things that were influencing us in certain ways Mm -hmm. but it's like you know, like so to me, it's maybe like, oh my gosh, Dumbo! I never thought about that, but to like, you know, to a black person, they're like, you didn't, because it was just like really offensive. So, do you know, I think it'll be interesting to see how, how, how it all unfolds. Um.
0: Okay. Okay. My next thing. Okay. This needs a trigger warning. Okay. Um. And this is related to sexual assault. Mm-hmm. So if people need to. Stop this, and I don't know how to cue that. It's safe to come back on because you'd have to uh, just skip around. You can around. put it in the notes. Yeah. Later. Okay, so um, I this is a thought experiment, um, and yesterday in my sermon, mm-hmm. I was at a point where I was talking about this is in the spirit of the um, the helpfulness of the snake on the stick as a repulsive image to describe Jesus. Is that I was trying to describe how we have an inability to appreciate how humiliating, humili. I don't know why I struggle with that word. Humility. humiliating. Hum-
1: humiliating.
0: Humiliating. Yeah, the cross was uh-huh. okay. It wasn't just a painful death; it right. was like a shame-based way to. So um, I've I've long heard that I have long have been um, educated in the fact that it was an honor-shame culture in like. You know, like I said, we now have narratives that make heroes out of people who die, etc. Like, that's not present there. Um, and, like, there's no rewards in Roman culture to some extent. I mean, you could read through, like, Marcus Aurelius. But, like, for being hu- humble. Like, that's a, a value in our culture. And there are certain expressions of that that are really high value. I don't think that's the same there. That All that being said, okay, a friend of mine who's a New Testament scholar, and this is the trigger warning part, okay, said that, um, well, like, to really understand the humiliation of the cross is like in our sense to think that like Jesus was sexually violated. Mm. And um, so I, I thought about that and that hit me with a force when I heard it mm-hmm. that I had never considered before. Mm-hmm. So this week as I was writing my sermon, I was um, thinking about that. Like, There's no way I can put that in the sermon right. and I'm glad I did not now a, a day later. Yeah. Um, but I also thought it's too bad because that's such a quick way to get to the truth of the thing. Mm-hmm. And then I was thinking about my conviction that church ought to be the place where you can have the most un- honest conversations. Of course, with the most tact. Right. And so I was just... Um, I was trying to figure all that out. Does it make sense? Yeah. And I don't have an answer.
1: Yeah. And um, of course,
0: it's interesting because I did feel comfortable bringing it up here in the podcast now. Yeah. And I guess it's because it's one more layer of... I don't know what it is, but...
1: Well, I do think, you know, we gave a trigger warning so people could move away if they needed to, um, and also, you know, well, what was I gonna say? I mean, I was gonna say I guess people can choose to tune in. It's like different than church, but obviously, people also choose to like watch, like watch or attend church. But
0: well, and I assume that like there's kids watching in a living room too. Yes, exactly. And there's other things at play um
1: but also i do think this is a conversation that is like best i do think this is part of it for me because i do think also that you made the right choice to not bring it up in the sermon that it's like we i mean you know um maybe people who are listening are not here right now to ask us a question but like we do make ourselves um really available for people to ask follow-up questions like pretty quickly um you could have a conversation with someone who had a question, which is the same about a sermon, except that the sermon moment is, it does have a certain, like a certain amount of reverence to it. Hmm. And there are people who would never, just because you said something in a sermon, they would never ask you a follow-up question about it, you know, because of the moment when you shared it. Sure. And not because they were mad, but because they were, because, you know, something inside of them is like, well, you can't ask a pastor a question about their sermon, whereas like here, I mean, and I know that's not our vibe. I'm, I'm
0: smirking for those who, because I can imagine a certain few people who would absolutely pipe in on the thread.
1: Well, that's not. <laughs> well, that's not really our vibe, right? You know what I mean at right. UBC, right? But that doesn't mean we still have people here who have like really their historic experience is probably with a place where that was. The situation like mm-hmm. you weren't really allowed to ask questions about the sermon sure
0: and I think in listening to you talk I, I guess it's implicit but the sermon is a certain kind of social contract yeah that the podcast is not and vice versa yeah and so we get that intuitively I just again i i always want church to be the most honest place um and you know maybe if I would have thought about hard enough I could have found a way to land that in the sermon but I just was you know you're a preacher too and I thought well
2: well,
1: but talk I also think you would have had to say, like... Right. ...trigger warning, please leave for a second. Right. And I think it's, like, for the podcast, I think that's an okay ask. But to say, like, hey, I'm about to talk about something...
0: Well, maybe that's it. Maybe the sermon, because of it's a worshiping moment for the community, should be more accessible on a regular basis for everyone.
1: Yeah, I think that's part of it. That's probably why you felt that way a little bit.
0: Well, thanks for doing that with me.
1: Of course. That was fun.
0: And you know what? There are other ways in our community in our groups where we get to do be that honest and
1: yes like here
0: like here okay uh one other thing before we go to the quiz yeah and that is that it's it's marty's birthday
1: it's marty's birthday should i try to call her yeah let's call her okay marty she's so funny i hope she picks up For the record she listens to the podcast every week so number one fan she doesn't she, yeah definitely our number one fan i feel like if she doesn't pick up she's gonna be so sad later she texted me she said i'll call you in a minute
0: okay well we'll take a call phone call from her in a minute
1: okay
0: great. um gosh i don't know if i should get started on this quiz then or not um or should we just hit pause
1: um, well, I could talk a little bit about my time with the fifth and sixth grade girls.
0: Oh, yeah. Please give us an update.
1: <laughs> they're so great. And it just has actually become pretty quickly become like one of my favorite parts of my job right now. Um, they're just like so last time we talked about suffering and they're so thoughtful and so great. And it just is like one of them was like, cause we were talking about how God is always with us even when we suffer. And they're like, that does make me feel better. I like, <laughs> I like to, that's good to think about. And, um, then what do they talk about? It's also so clear that they have like really great parents. You know right. what I mean? Cause they're like, it's okay when you have a bad day. Like sometimes you just need to cry it out. And I'm like, That's so true. Like, great job, you guys.
0: Would you be willing to say that in a sermon for us on Sundays?
1: (laughs) And also, at one point, someone was like, so it it does make me a little confused. Like, if someone is, because we've been talking about really the creation story, and then today we're talking about, or yesterday we're talking about the consequences of Adam and Eve and like their choice, and then, you know, being sent out of the garden, and um, they were like, so is it someone, one of them said like, is it like, is it like if someone's homeless, is it cause they made a bad choice? And I was like, well, I don't think so. You know, I think it's more like that we have not decided cause they all kept being like, what if we all just did what like God wanted us to do and like loved each other all the time. And I was like, that would be great. <laughs> and they were like, uh, what if, Oh, yeah. So I said, I don't think that it's like they've made a bad choice. I think it's like that we, you know, sort of haven't... We don't love people the way that we should love them. And, like, if we had systems in place to help people, then, like, it's like that's the wrong choice. And they were all just like, yeah, that seems right to me. (laughs) (laughs) And I was just like, these are like 11-year-olds, you know? They're so great.
0: Well, that is... And this is not to... Because really, for fifth graders, that's uh, way more sophisticated than my headspace was. Certainly. Um, but, you know, I think about the places where Jesus talks about, you know, become like a child. Mm-hmm. And to, again, reach to this different models of system, like there is something very redemptive about that posture. Is this Marty? No. Of the, the evangelical or the fundamentalist, as we're using it in that model, mm-hmm. where um, for me, that naivete they bring is very faith-building and formative, to be yeah. around that. And I had that experience when we launched the youth group and, Uh you know, they were much more middle schoolers by that point. But like, um, well, and that
1: was, I mean, it was, it was fifth to like eighth grade really. Right.
0: Yeah. I don't remember what it was at the time, but like, yeah, there was a range there. And, um, but just that, like, I love middle school, Mm -hmm. uh, kind of epistemic posture towards faith. Yeah. It's uh, it's very life giving for me.
1: Same. It's been like so fun to be with them and. They just have great questions and...
0: Well, and I don't know what it is, but, like, if I say, yeah, God is love, but for some reason when they say, yeah, God is love, yeah, it's just so yeah. life-giving. Yeah. Okay, here's Marty.
1: Here's Marty. Marty. Yes. Marty. Yes. <laughs> You're on the podcast. What?
0: Marty, happy birthday.
1: Happy birthday. <laughs> oh guys i love you marty i love you taylor are you having a good birthday so far um yeah except Uh, i hate daylight savings time oh my Oh, marty
0: that's straight from hell
1: daylight savings time i hate losing an hour of sleep yeah amen to that the worst that's from the lord we totally yeah yeah.
0: marty um what do you want for your birthday this year
1: Um, For everyone to be vaccinated. Yes, <laughs> and peace, love, and happiness.
0: Good, Marty. Let me ask you a question, because um, you're you're barely just older than I am. Um, but <laughs> but as as someone who is just a, a hair further down the road, I have noticed that I'm at a place in my life where I really don't need or want gifts anymore. Um, is that true of you? And if so, is it disappointing? Are you thankful to be in a place where you don't need gifts?
1: I am thankful to be in a place where I don't need gifts, Marty. You don't have to lie. Except, I do <laughs> love being surprised. Yeah. So, so I love getting gifts, but I don't feel like I have to ask for gifts. Does that make sense?
0: Is it easy for you to identify what you want?
1: No. <laughs> Every now and then, at Christmas this year, I did a pretty good list. Yeah, but did I? I feel like Marty's favorite gifts are always sentimental things Oh, that we like give her.
0: Well, that's, I think, also part of aging is you stop asking for things and you ask for meaning.
1: Yeah. Right now, I'm still like, will you buy me a tea kettle? Will you buy... (laughs) Like, I'm trying to get my things into my home. Yeah. Yeah. So... Well, you're a Taylor champ. asked for towels this year at Christmas. I have asked for towels multiple I love years.
0: that. That's such an adult yeah, thing to true. ask for.
1: Well, it's like, I want nice towels, and yeah. I don't want to pay for them.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, well, I love you, Marty, and you're a champ. Oh, thank you. I love you, too. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for calling me, guys. Yeah, happy hey, birthday, Marty. And did Taylor, did Taylor tell you that I missed the podcast last week? I was well, so sad.
0: I missed getting to make the podcast last week, so we're in the same boat, Marty.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Well, good. So. Okay. Well, we love you be much, Marty. Love you be much. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. What a champ! I know, isn't she so cute? Some people
0: can just fill up an emotional space with the right kind of energy that it's enjoyable, and Marty's one of them.
1: Marty definitely does that. She always has. Like, I feel like my whole life, people have really then if if she really like you said yeah she just has a way to like draw people to her because she's being fun she's being marty
0: well taylor yeah it's time to transition to your quiz Quiz. now this is a little peculiar this is from i have to find the website because it says google at the top of mine Uh, it is from ringer the ringer the ringer do you know that
1: yeah, I love The Ringer. What
0: is it? Is That's it...
1: what Shea Serrano writes for.
0: Oh, okay, great. Well, look at that. I'm relevant.
1: <laughs> do you know who it is? It's Bill Simmons. He used to do Grantland. Oh,
0: this of course it's Bill Simmons. Yeah. Okay, so what this is, this is in the spirit of two things. It's a mm-hmm. combination. So my show right now I'm binging is um, Community. Right. And Brie is my connection point for this. We text about it. Yeah. And I told her last night, um, Abed, one of the characters, is one of my favorite TV characters of all time. Okay. Um, I would put him in the top 20, I would say. Okay. Okay.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Got me thinking about best TV characters of all time. Okay. And The Ringer put together a bracket, a 64-person bracket of the best TV characters of all time. Okay. There are four um, quadrants, like there is in the real brackets. There are bosses, millennials. I have to zoom out and zoom back in for a second. Millennials. Uh, wild cards and scene stealers, okay? Okay. So we don't have time to do all these. Okay. But what I'm going to do is give you descriptions of the, the Sweet 16,
1: uh-huh. and
0: you'll guess the person. And then we'll just walk through who they had win the whole thing.
1: Okay. Well, okay, so just the Sweet 16.
0: Yeah, because I think 64 would take way too long. I but I do want to backtrack because there are some great, like, eight, nine matches. And then there's, like, a one seed I didn't even know. Oh, weird. So, Okay. All right, the uh, Sweet Sixteen in the Bosses category. Okay. All right, this person, the number one seed, who is mm-hmm. here, was um, probably he was part of a show that is often credited with like the dawning of the golden age of television, and it's an HBO show, and he is most definitely the boss. I need
1: a little more. Okay, it's an HBO show. Yeah, so
0: it's like actually, I'm not sure it was HBO. I think it was. Um, so there was the um the other big one that people loved was the wire huh. this is the other one that came around on the same time is
1: it the sopranos yes so tony soprano yep
0: tony soprano uh-huh. okay the um the he's taking on the four seed
1: he's taking on the four seed in the sweet
0: 16 which is those are the two top seeds in that category uh-huh. uh is a um a real hero uh she's been in our discussion all right and she loves waffles
1: Leslie Nope. Leslie Nope, okay. Oh my gosh. Alright. And the
0: bottom of the bosses is the six seed versus the two seed. The two seed is a character in a show that people often tell me is their favorite show of all time. It's also from the golden age of television and it's on AMC. It was.
1: AMC. I don't know many AMC shows. You do know this one. She it's a woman. Nope. Guy. Oh, okay. uh,
0: he he is a high school teacher.
1: Okay. Oh, um, Walter White. Yes.
0: Okay. Okay. The other boss, uh-huh. that's the six seed, uh-huh. is from my second favorite TV show of all time, <laughs> set in Texas. Oh, um, okay. It's
1: uh, Coach Taylor? Yep. Okay. So, okay.
0: so you have Tony Soprano, Leslie Nope, Eric Taylor, and Walter White. Okay. Who do you think wins between Leslie and Soprano? Uh,
1: I don't know. Tony Soprano, I Only
0: because they're sexist. Yeah. Okay. And then who wins between Eric Taylor and Walter White?
1: Mm, are you happy about the outcome? Um, For me,
0: it's like you have two final four figures in a a, a Sweet 16 game here.
1: So, no. So, Walter White wins.
0: Yep. And then Walter White versus Soprano. Um,
1: I... You know, I never watched Breaking Bad or The Sopranos. Oh! I'm sorry. You never
0: watched Breaking Bad?
1: No. (laughs) You guys, Josh got so concerned for me. Okay. Um, uh, no, I never have. So, I think, um... Walter White?
0: Yeah, that was the uh, the two beat the one seed. So I, I don't think an upset, but an upset. All right. Oh, we got some good feminism down here now.
1: <laughs>
2: okay. All right.
0: In the uh, the millennials bracket. Okay. The nine seed beat the one seed to get there. It's Nathan Fielder, which I Googled him, and he's like the Nathan Fielder show or something. Oh. Uh, beat the one seed, which was Valanel. I guess she's from Killing Eve. I've never watched that
1: Villanelle, show. Villanel, yeah. Villanel. Sorry. She's the... A- I would say sort of antagonist, although, it's yeah, she is.
0: She was a one seed.
1: Um, yeah. Have you ever watched Killing Eve?
0: No. Toph likes it.
1: Yeah, it's really good. I think Lindsay would like it. Well,
0: anyways, there was a, a huge upset in the round of 32 because um, Nathan F- Fielder beat, so I'm just giving you that one, filling up. Okay, the, the five seed look her up. Yeah. who beat the four seed Baby Yoda was the heroine, from, I call her the heroine from like the most epic production HBO ever did.
1: Oh, um, Daenerys Targaryen.
0: Okay, uh, great guess. I would say this heroine actually defeated the most menacing threat.
1: Um, so then Arya starts. Yes, okay,
0: the five seed. Okay, then down below. You have um, somebody from that same show who oh, yeah. was a millennial. So, not that same show, the same as the Walter White show.
1: What is, oh,
0: um. You don't know if you would know him if you haven't seen the show.
1: Oh, yeah. He's not one of the main two. Yeah, people.
0: he is. He is the other one.
1: Um, the guy, yeah. the younger guy. Jesse
0: Pinkman's the three seed? Yes. Okay, now there is a big upset that I'm up. I'm not happy about
1: okay. the fifteen seed. I'm confused about how these people are millennials. Like Arya Stark lives in another timeline for sure, but okay. sorry, I
0: don't know. No, it's not. Okay, so let's in the millennials bracket. The two seed lost the first round to the fifteen seed. Fleabag, the two seed, mm. lost to Cartman.
1: Ugh, from um, gross.
0: Yeah, I hated that too. Um, and, South,
1: then, from South yeah, I and then South Park. Yeah, and then
0: Tim Riggins, the seven seed. Lost to Cartman, the fifteen seed. So the Cartman gets in as a fifteen seed versus Pinkman.
1: Wow, I find that Pinkman. very offensive. Okay, I now think that's
0: misogynistic. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> Jesse Pinkman versus Cartman. Jesse Pinkman. Yep. Arya Stark versus um, Nathan Fielder.
1: I hope Arya Stark. Yep.
0: Arya Stark versus Jesse Pinkman.
1: Jesse Pinkman. Nope. Oh, <gasps> Arya Stark won.
0: She, we have a woman in the finals. I
1: love Arya Stark. So we have
0: Walter White and Arya Stark. Okay, now we're moving to the scene stealers category. Okay. Okay. Oh, sh- sorry, I'm just really trying to keep this. This is not working well. Let me flip my phone and see if that works. Okay. The one seed here is a character, again, from that epic HBO show. Okay. Um, he was, like, m- most people's lovable favorite character. Jon Snow. Uh, okay. No, then I guess I'm wrong.
1: Okay. Um, hold on. It's okay. Um, what's his name? Peter Dinklage.
0: Yes. Tyrion Lannister. Yeah. Okay. Um. Then the five seed is a guy from, um, well, I'm gonna give you a different name. bears, beats, and Bale star Black.
1: Dwight Schrute. I was sure Dwight Schrute was gonna be in this category.
0: Okay. Then um, the three seed is Leslie Nope's nemesis in season five.
1: Jeremy Jan.
0: Sorry, uh, it's like a six-episode thing where they're not getting along. He's he's like her main guy. Um. The bad description.
1: Where they're not getting along.
0: Yeah. Scene Stealer. Oh, from Parks and Rec.
1: Yeah. Is I mean, it Paul Rudd?
0: No, sorry, I, I threw you off.
1: No, it's fine. Hates the
0: government. Hates the government. But works for the government.
1: <laughs> Ron? Ron Swanson. Oh, okay. The three seed. Okay, okay, okay. Okay.
0: And then um one of Tyrion's siblings, the seventh seed. Beat- Cersei. Beat Peggy Olson, yeah. Okay, let's stop there uh-huh. on that on the best characters list of all time thing. I found mm-hmm. Peggy Olson from Mad Men was number one.
1: People really like Peggy Olson.
0: I I don't get it. I People watched really three like seasons in with
1: Moss. I think again, she's,
0: she's fantastic. Yeah, I didn't understand why Peggy Olson was. Maybe I needed to finish the why show. Why
1: she was so? Yeah, for the record, I was about to say I haven't finished it. Okay. So
0: uh, Tyrion versus Dwight. I think Dwight. Dwight, you're right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ron Swanson versus Siri Lannister.
1: Uh, I I think Cersei.
0: Ron Swanson.
1: Hell yeah. Ron
0: Swanson versus Dwight Schrute. Oh. Yeah.
1: I think Dwight Schrute.
0: They put Ron Swanson.
1: Interesting.
0: Okay, now, in the wild cards category, Uh the number one seed was, um, I think... Well, I think the character who portrays American ignorance more than any other character, like who Americans quintessentially are in a in a comic kind of trope, he was the main character on I think the best comedy on television
1: um, when
0: um from like oh five to fourteen or
1: wow
0: maybe it started o four
1: I don't know I can't. Think of it. We've talked about the show already. Today? Yep. Oh, um. Wildcards? Uh no, I don't know. It
0: Mike was, Michael Scott.
1: Oh. Okay. Oh really? Taking but, on the But Michael Scott was not in the bosses category.
0: No, he's in the wild cards category. Interesting. Okay, taking on um a guy who has his own show as a derivative of Breaking Bad. I don't know if you've seen Saul? Him. Yep, Saul Goodman's the five seed. Okay, the other person is, this is a real person.
1: Okay.
0: I think he plays him real self on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Um, Larry? Yep, Larry David, the three seed. Taking on the two seed of a show I mentioned at the very beginning is one of the dawning of mm-hmm. um, the golden age of television, HBO show. The Sopranos? The other one. The Wire. Yeah. Um, Do you know who this person is?
1: I haven't watched The Wire, but it is on my list.
0: Omar Little is the two seed. Okay. Okay. Larry David versus Omar Little.
1: My guess would be Larry David.
0: Omar Little. Oh, yay. Michael Scott versus Saul Goodman. Michael Scott. Yep. Okay. Omar Little versus Michael Scott.
1: I hope Michael Scott. Michael Scott.
0: Okay. Okay. Now our final four. Walter White, Ira Stark, Ron Swanson, Michael Scott.
1: Okay.
0: Ron Swanson versus Michael Scott.
1: Michael Scott.
0: Yep. Walter White versus Ira Stark.
1: Walter
0: White. Yep. National Championship. Michael Scott versus Walter White. Uh, is
1: it Walter White? <gasps> it's Michael Scott? It's Michael Scott. I feel so excited for him.
0: Okay, that's interesting. I do too. But, like, here's the thing. Because, you know... Um, <laughs> you know
1: he's not a real gay person. Yeah. Well,
0: I, I'm, I'm surprised... I'm not and I am surprised that he was picked. It mm-hmm. depends, I think, who you're talking to. Because uh, all the things I just said were to the point, like, people have said to me, I can't watch The Office anymore because the show is so cringy now. Sure. For for doing exactly what it intended it to do. Like, we yeah. we call out shows for being ignorant. No, they did the offensive things on purpose. Well, it's
1: like they were portraying ignorance to be like, do you see this ignorance? Yeah. Yes.
0: Um, but the other thing is, is like, he's like the personification of this. Mm-hmm. And so with all the cultural sensitivity stuff that is happening right now, it's interesting to me that yeah he would win
1: i do think for me though the thing about michael scott that you know certainly is maybe not true in the beginning but becomes true throughout the course of the show like it becomes apparent is that like um and this is what we all do right is for someone you don't know Uh, It's easy to like call someone out And be like you need to learn this lesson As it should be for the record But for the people we do know It's like Michael Scott Loves people very well Mm -hmm. And supports people very well And wants so deeply To be also like loved and supported Yeah And so it's like he's always His intentions are always good But it's like he just doesn't know nobody ever taught him these lessons. Do you know what I mean? So right. it's like, and also, do I feel bad that like another white man, Jim or whatever, might be responsible for teaching him those lessons? No, that yeah. should be Jim's job. You know? Yeah,
0: that's a good point.
1: Um, So, you know, there's that.
0: Well, thanks for playing. I think I'm actually going to take screenshots of the quadrants and list this as a story on our Instagram because it was so much fun and just hear what people think because I thought it was great.
1: It was so fun.
0: Yeah. And I thought they did a decent job. My only critique is this is very much trapped in like from 2000 on. Yeah. Um, There's not even like – I didn't scrutinize. I don't even see any of the Friends characters on there, that kind of thing, or Seinfeld characters. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, maybe they have a qualifier in the description.
1: Well, but what would the... F- I guess Phoebe is... Really well, here
0: funny. it says the best TV characters of the century. So maybe it's like starting with 2000. Yeah. That would make sense. Yeah. Um, so that was fun. We'd have to do another one of all time and it would be a way different bracket.
1: Yeah. Also, are there any West Wing characters on there?
0: Well, that's a good point because that show would have spilled over into this. Yeah, but no. When did
1: The Sopranos start?
0: Uh, I think it was like right around 2000.
1: Okay. Yeah. Well, technically West Wing started in the 90s. So. Yeah.
0: I don't know. Maybe that disqualified it. Yeah. You got to draw boundaries somewhere else. Your list would be infinite. So true. Okay. Well, uh, we need to go to commercial and then um, we're going to come back and introduce our guest. Yeah. Okay. Taylor. Yeah. Well, guess what? I um, I committed to fixing up our, our minivan because it's 10 years old, but it only has 100,000 miles. I'm like, it should had a, a lot of life left. Yeah. So I took and I got the cruise control fixed, but I needed new struts in the front okay. of the car, the suspension. Mm-hmm. And you know where I took my car? Where? To our sponsor, Midway Automotive, out yeah. in um, Hewitt, off of the old McGregor Drive, I think it is.
1: Yeah.
0: So it was. Uh, they were quick. I dropped it off on a Thursday. I was nervous because they didn't have a record of me making an appointment. And by Friday afternoon, my car was completely done, ready to go, and in great shape. Wow. So if you are looking to get your car fixed up, really for anything, I mean, they do oil, they do struts, they do radiator fluid, blinker fluid, the whole thing. They do it all. They do it all. Go to Midway Automotive. That's uh, 910, 9101 Old McGregor Road. Um, or you can give him a call just to see at 254 772 0760. That's Midway Automotive at 254
1: 772
0: 0760. Woohoo! Well, Taylor, we're back. And um, before we ring in our guest, I wanted to just spend a second talking about it. I'm very excited, very honored yeah. that um, uh, Thibodeau, mm-hmm. as he's called in the Waco miniseries, mm-hmm. is going to be our guest today. Mm-hmm. Um I wanted to start here. Uh he was portrayed by was it Rory Culkin? Did you watch the show Waco?
1: I have not watched it but I want to obviously cuz I love Yeah. Tim
0: <laughs> And I want to ask him about that cuz he did encounter him. Um you know, he um he wrote a book which I read. Yeah. Um and so and it feels personal to me cuz we're in Waco. Yeah. And uh, for those of you that don't know, um, David Thibodeau was one of the survivors of the siege on Mount Carmel Mm -hmm. back that happened in 94. No,
1: not Mount Carmel.
0: That was another name for it. Oh, was it? Yeah.
1: I did not know that.
0: I mean, it's known as the Branch Davidian Complex. Uh Uh-huh. But I think in one thing in reading his book, that term is a little offensive. He never says it that explicitly, but if I remember... The Branch Davidian Complex? Well, because that's like, I think that was some of the language, if I remember correctly, that the FBI was using... To Mm -hmm. kind of frame them as a certain kind of cult. uh
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, which was...
0: Maybe I remember that incorrectly. I don't know. Um, But, yeah. And so uh, we're here, and we are a religious institution in Waco. Yeah. And so um, I wanted to ask you what you first remembered about it. I was, interestingly... Oh,
1: yeah. Mount Carmel. I'm sorry. That's okay.
0: Sitting at a uh, table, and my mom got a phone call from Judy Fleming, who was a woman in our church, and Mm -hmm. said, did you hear what's going on in Waco? And this must have been early in the the standoff. Mm -hmm. And we said, no. But I was doing a puzzle of America, like one of those cardboard ones, you know, Uh the pieces. Mm -hmm. And I put Texas in. And it was interesting because Texas, uh, one of the cities that was highlighted was Waco. Oh.
1: Um,
0: And I'm like, well, that's interesting because here's Waco in this puzzle right in front of me. I I don't remember that so clearly. And then I ended up moving here. And I went out to the site the very first year I was here and saw it. Um, And then I really haven't thought much about it until they did the miniseries again. And then I started checking up on David Thibodeau, and sure enough, he he's a person, and yeah. he's agreed to talk to us. So I'm so excited. Yeah,
1: very exciting. I, um, you know, 1993, I think I was only five years old. Um, so I don't remember much about it as like an original experience in my life. Do you know what I mean? hmm But um, we learned about it in school, uh, and... I have a friend named Jenny King. We taught together, and she is from Waco. She grew up here. And I just remember her always kind of being like, it is the only thing anyone will talk to me about is Hmm. the Branch Davidians. And then she was like, so thankful for Chip and Joe. Because she was like, now.
0: It's been rebranded.
1: People just talked to me about Chip and Joe instead of the Branch Davidians. Yeah. So. That's the thing I think of all time is my friend Jenny.
0: Well, and really, I mean, the the compound had its proximity to Waco, but it's really not Waco.
1: Yeah, it's not in Waco.
0: So, but we can ask him and those other questions. So,
1: I'm excited. Yeah,
0: we hope you enjoyed this conversation with um, the very gracious David Thibodeau, who agreed to talk to us.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay, uh, friends, we are now joined here with our new friend, David Thibodeau. David, thanks for being with us this morning or afternoon. Hi,
3: Nice to be here. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it.
0: Uh, David, there's just so much to think about when approaching a conversation with you. Thanks for giving us the time. I guess um, initial question I have is what sort of sense do you have of yourself? Um, and I suspect your your sense of celebrity, I, I you probably don't think yourself a celebrity, but just your uh, notoriety in, increased, I'm sure, what seems like a hundredfold after the miniseries came out. What was it, 2008 or 18? Is that right?
3: Yeah, 2017, I think.
0: And if I understand right, didn't they basically, the writers use your book as a sort of a, a prominent influence in forming the screenplay for that?
3: Yeah, very much so. Uh, that and one of the FBI agents who was the one of the initial negotiators, they used his book as well. But he had a chapter. <laughs> so his book was about the division between the FBI tactical commanders and the negotiators, which there was an amazing, mm-hmm. unbelievable, Precedent and unfounded division between two factions trying supposedly working together to bring about the same conclusion was the safe the the, the, the safe Extraction if you will of everyone from the building uh, I I know I'm gonna get off topic here, but I'm thinking of this now. So I just want to say this yeah, please do. Um, There's an individual called Stuart Wright who has written many many critical Um, analysis of what the FBI did and in the the FBI actually you know it was said it's too bad the FBI didn't have a manual of what to do and what not to do in a situation like this turns out they did have a manual Mm -hmm. and there, there were something there were many different precepts of exactly what you do in a situation if you want people to come out safely they violated something like 11 of their own tenets of what there's to follow to get Mm. people out of a building in a situation like this crisis. So why? Was that out of ignorance? Were they not aware of their own rule book? Was it an ego thing because four federal agents were killed at a scene where they shot at women and children indiscriminately for 45 minutes? Why? Why would they not follow? and directly go against 11 of their own principles if they wanted people to come out safely. Sure. So Stuart, anyway, all that writing can be seen on my website, Waco survivors. I'm just going to plug it right away because I want people to understand that all the reference material that I could possibly make available is on my website, wacosurvivors.com. So you can look at, I don't want you to take anything that I say for granted, go look it up for yourself. All the information is there. In other words. So, uh, what, was you, what was your original question? I got sidetracked. Well, let some. me
0: because I want to reframe now, or at least reask. Um, sure. So you, um, you know, we established before we hopped on that the screenplay was was they used your book to do a lot of it. And well, maybe I just said that. I'm wondering then, um, having seen now the miniseries, I feel like for folks that are younger than me, I'm 39, that have seen it, they do come out with a pretty empathetic posture towards yourself and the other survivors and, and the victims who perished that day. Do you feel like the miniseries accomplished what you would hope, or do you have uh, sort of a disdain for how you were portrayed?
3: That's a very good question. I feel like the mini, the, the well the miniseries definitely accomplished more than I could imagine, and that is they humanized the people, which what, what, that's what was important here because they were people. Not only were they people, but they were people that had a greater understanding of the Bible than most people ever will in their lifetimes so even with religious other religious groups you could say baptist protestants whatever it it, it doesn't matter (laughs) if you have the same book as your foundation um i feel like you should have an understanding of that book or or just call it a day Why? why are you involved in religion if you don't have an understanding of what what your foundation is of the people that i've seen in the groups that i've and I haven't been involved with many religious groups. Don't get me wrong, but the people at Mount Carmel just had a great understanding of the Scripture. That's that's what David did when he said he taught the seven seals. That means that he taught the book Genesis to Revelation, harmonized chapter upon chapter, show you what it meant, show you what it we're going, showed you a plan, if you will. I hadn't met a lot of people that could do that. You know, even very religious people who claim that they understand the Bible quite a bit maybe we'll take a verse out of the Bible and do a whole synopsis on that. David was taking whole chapters and putting them together. So man, it was just like the Bible came alive when he gave a talk or when he gave the teaching. So that's something that that's a dimension. Most people aren't aware of. They just, it's easier to think that a guy who was really charismatic and, and, you know, very good with people and had a good understanding of psychology could manipulate a bunch of people into an end that he wanted that's just not entirely, that's just not true. There's just so much more to this story. It's so much deeper. And even in my book, you know, like I think the greatest failure of my book, um, which was originally Waco, A Survivor's Story, actually originally it was a place called Waco. They changed the name to Waco Survivor's Story when the show came out. But there's a whole dimension that's missing there. And that's the scriptural dimension. I did that on purpose. You know, I just told my story and I, 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 I understood <laughs> so hard for me because the, I understood that it was missing a whole dimension that was critical for me and that was the dimension of the scripture and what it really said what it really meant and how literally reading psalms you could see the tanks outside the, the windows going up and down the double e ranch road and you could see that in the bible and go oh my god this is happening and it was written written about thousands of years ago literally 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 um, people use that word literally way too weakly. <laughs> it's yeah. literally, you could see this happening and taking place in the Bible coming alive as you're going through the experience. So it's, it, you can't really, you know, you can't really get across t- to a non-secular, to say, I should say a secular audience, that experience. But I didn't try. I just wanted to, you know, I, I just told my experience from a worldly perspective, which is, I was just a worldly drummer guy. I wasn't looking for God. God found me, you know, the scripture found me. I was not looking for it. I didn't expect any of that.
0: Can you just say briefly how you conceive of your religious self at this point? Well,
3: it's really complicated because the foundation of that scripture is always there. Having gone through an experience that you see out of a book, (laughs) that's something that I think will always stay with you. I could never be an atheist, let me put it that way. I've always believed that something has directed me to a specific spot, um, even here now, and I'm not even sure why I'm, I'm here now in Waco, but there's just, things have happened to me that I that I just can't explain. But at the same time, I have a very open mind to, uh, to everything, especially I'm fascinated with geology, I'm fascinated with science, I'm fascinated with, with, with history. My dad is a history teacher, well, retired. So history plays a huge role and I think even understanding foreign policy and understanding what's happening today, if we don't understand, like, a lot of people wanna say, well, China's the enemy. Well, why is China the enemy? You know, why was uh, the Afghanistan's the enemy? Why, why why, do we make the enemy of so many people all over the world and then just so we can attack them and then we're all just waving the American flag and it's just we don't even know why we're there. You know, these things stem back thousands of years. We People have done trade with China, every nation on the face of the earth has done trade with China since the beginning of time. So, so what's what's happening now? Okay, I mean, I, I'm not going to get too into all the political stuff. But my point is that I'm just open to all things. I, I personally, I, oh, boy, I will always believe in God, and I will always believe there's something to the Bible and the Scripture. I think that's very important to say. But I can't look at the history of the world and say we've only been around for 6,000 years as a culture as a civilization. I, I, it just doesn't make sense. But that doesn't mean the scripture isn't true. I think it means that mankind's interpretation of it is very flawed. And I think there's a lot that has been hidden from us from, from the Catholic Church and and from the pope stemming back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years i mean i think there's a lot that we are not privy to see that that uh, that is sitting in in the vatican's catacomb sitting in the in the the dark dungeons of the vaticans i'd I'd like to know i I, that's my problem i want to know it all is the problem and you learn things contrary to the bible that takes you maybe away from your faith or your foundation and it makes you question it i think you should question it i think god gave us the ability to reason and think for ourselves for a very specific and deep reason. However that said, I see people of faith doing things for other people. And I and I don't see a lot of atheists getting together and, you know, getting getting organizations together to go out and help the poor or the homeless things like that. So it, it's it's these kind of things in my life. I'm I'm just always wrestling. I'm someone who is always wrestling and I probably will never be comfortable and I'll probably never be able to say 100% I believe this or that.
2: Sure.
3: I'm starting to believe we're an alien experiment and we're in some alien <laughs> zoo somewhere and someone's just checking us out and watch what they do when we do this. Well, uh, seriously, the the more I live, the more I think that's the that's the truth.
0: Yeah, the uh, the simulation thing doesn't seem crazy when you just consider some of the the unlikely phenomena that occur and unfold in the world all the time.
3: Yeah, that's really wild.
0: Um, can you, so one thing that both your book and the miniseries did for me was humanize David in a way um, that I, I think was good. I also thought that your book wasn't uncritical of him, which I thought was appropriate. Um, but can you just describe like, uh, you know, two books that really had an impact on the way I think about religion is somebody who's a pastor of a Baptist church in Waco, Texas, were your book and also John Krakauer's book, Under the Banner of Heaven. Um, and I'm not trying to equivocate the two or compare them. I'm just saying they're writing about a particular religious experience. And I just very broadly saying how powerful religion can be in people's lives. So I think my question is, um, can you just describe David Koresh and the magnanimous kind of person he was? And I mean, I know, uh, you know, the seven seals and all that. Well, I don't know the nuance of scripture, but I just I wonder what it was because he, he's unique in history really, and what it was like to be around that kind of a person and just any insight you could give as um, having thought about him for 20 plus years.
3: You know, that that is fair. That's a, a really good insight. He is unique in history. And I don't think a lot of people <clears throat> talk about that enough. And, you know, one of the one of the things that Dr. Phil Arnold, Phil Arnold is a, you know, um, you know, is the Reunion Institute, runs the Reunion Institute at Rice University. He's, he's in Houston. And he's one of the guys that basically was working with David through a radio show, saying that you know we have listened to your sixty-minute message, and it, this isn't a rambling idiot. He really does have a scriptural message, and we would like to hear that message and disseminate it to to the the religious world, if you will, or you know the world of academia, if nothing less. And so that's when Chris started writing his seven seal manuscript down, and we had an agreement with the FBI that once that was finished, we, we'd come out. Okay so that was important and i i I bring that up because i recently i'm trying to get a documentary made about a a six i want a six to twelve part documentary so very thorough and for the first time tells the entire story and so in an interview i had with phil arnold he said we can't go back and interview muhammad we don't know what muhammad actually wrote we know what he said what other people said. we don't know what buddhist we know what buddha what people had written about buddha we don't know what he actually said we don't know what jesus actually said we know what people had written about him here's someone who's claiming to reveal the seven seals who's claiming he's divinely inspired and we have audio tapes of his message okay we have tapes of him talking to the fbi during the course of the 51 days and that's all on tape so for the first time someone who's claiming well, not the first time but someone who's claiming divine inspiration there's a record of it now so, so what does that mean? You know, we go and check out his message. But I just thought that that, that was an interesting insight. Now, I'm not, gonna, I'm not here to convince your audience that David Koresh was inspired or isn't. That's something that, that was a very personal thing between myself and between other people in the group and that individual who was David Koresh. Um, the best way that I can say it is that when David gave a study, it was like the book came alive. It was like Genesis to Revelation. It's like he was seeing it before him as it was happening. So when he's talking, you really start to get an understanding of what Isaiah 66 means. And, and you know, in relation to Zechariah, in relation to all of the other minor and major prophets, and then tie it all in with relation with Revelation and show where the, who is the man on the red horse, the white horse, the pale horse? Okay. Who are these people? Where are they found scripturally? And that that's what David could do. That's why people like, and was, uh, something very interesting to consider about Mount Carmel too, which I think a lot of people will said of. You know, a third of the people that were at Mount Carmel were black, and most of those individuals from were from England, and most of them went to seminary school. So the people that were coming over to study with David, especially the year before everything happened, most of them were students that had gone to seminary school to further their education so they could serve God. So they could understand what the scripture really said, and they all told me the same thing. Many different people: the Henry family, my God, there was Winston Blake. There were so many of them: uh, Livingston Fagan, um, Stone, And uh, There were just so many different individuals that gave me the same story. They learned more from David in a couple of days, a couple just just sitting down with him and talking scripture, than they had their year studying in their schools. And so they said, "Why go to school anymore? Let's go to Waco, Texas, and." Learned from this guy, and that's what had happened. That's why so many people from England came over to, to stay, especially before the BATF raid on February 28th. There were there was a lot of foreign nationals, but a third of the people at, at Mount Carmel at die were black. And and my point has always been, where's the ACLU? Where are all these? How come that's, What's going on? How come that's not talked about enough, especially in. Especially today, especially in the environment of today, and I just want to, you know, I just want to keep like the the Black Lives Matter movement. I, I hold that very close to my heart. Nobody should be pulled over and think that they're going to die because a cop has pulled them over. That's absolutely unacceptable. It's absolutely ridiculous for a civilization such as ours, such as the United States, as advanced as we're supposed to be, to have anyone fear for their life getting pulled over at a traffic stop. And, it's 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 preposterous it's outrageous that that still is going on today it is so it is it's time it's time it's well past time for movements like this to occur and the the fact that they're so politicized and you get the extremes on both sides it drives me batty because you can't fight racism when everyone when when there's another whole side supporting Something that doesn't appear to be racist, yet at heart, at its heart, it really is. It's a very confusing time. You know, we're so far technologically advanced. We're supposed to have all this wisdom that's at our fingertips, and yet there's so much miscommunication. There's so much propaganda on both sides. On both sides, it, it, it's hard to disseminate it all. It's it's really can be a bit maddening. And I feel a little sorry for this generation. You know, for the younger people coming up. Um, they put us to shame in many ways. You know, there's an equality out there that didn't exist when I was younger that I see within how people treat each other and how, especially younger people want to be called what they want to be called, who they want to be and how they, they, they wish to be treated. I think that's wonderful. I, I have a problem with going after 20 year old thought crimes, however, but you know, people grow and they learn as they go. So, there, there's something that's just very wrong about being so judgmental. I had someone recently call me a racist and then defriend me without even listen to me they they, they they wouldn't even let me argue a point. It was over the Dr. Seuss thing and I just don't want to see my childhood disappear because someone claims that Dr. Seuss is racist and I understand okay that six Dr. Seuss books were taken off by the publisher. I get that, I didn't at the time. At the time, it was a knee-jerk reaction to something that I saw as being a witch hunt. Then I saw some of those cartoons and some of them were terrible. And yes, those books probably should be taken off the market, but at the same time, I, I'm kind of like if it's already existed and it's there, maybe we should put it in a, in a museum and watch it to understand how terrible it was as opposed just to erasing history. So. Anyway, that's so actually me,
0: something we talked about earlier. We pre-recorded the first part of the episode. Is is um, uh, probably an agreement in what should be censored, but how to do that the right way and and how to do that thoughtfully as a culture. Where you know, because there is a difference between you know, this is not what you're saying, but a monument and a museum is kind of the, mm. the buzzwords.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's good.
1: Um, yeah, that's yeah, so interesting that we were talking about that earlier. Um, but I was wondering. Uh oh. Oh, sorry, something happened with the screen. Um, I was wondering a little bit, I do feel like uh, I would like to hear a little more about um, your experience. I feel like, um, you know, sort of this experience in Waco, what an interesting place Waco is, but also it must really, you know, I don't think everyone has something like that, that sort of there's probably a before and an after in your life of like an experience of the world. And so I just would love to hear a little bit about What that was like and what afterwards was like and it seems like you've processed a lot and like what that looked like and how that happened for you.
3: Sure. I'm going to answer your question. I'm gonna answer what I think you're asking. (laughs) So let's let's go back. Yeah, correct. I'm I'm 52 now for a lot of time to reflect things and learn new things that have added to my insight of things. But let's go back to 1993 and living in a very scriptural group. Actually, this is good because it brought up a point that I think you were trying to get to earlier when you were talking about David. And you know, he I hate to, I don't use the C word, uh cult. I, I don't use that word. There's sect, there's all kinds of other words that I feel are better because I think cult is a demonization word. Um you always want to put the word satanic in front of cult. And the truth is that the majority of groups of religious people that have gotten together have gotten together over the Bible or the Quran, depending on what area of the world you grow up in. i get so sorry. So, you know, these, word, these words are very powerful. Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus could have been, you know, 12 guys following this guy around Judea, and that was definitely very cultish, if you will. So what's my point? My point is that... <clears throat> People wanted to know what the seven seals were and they were there for that. And that's what David Koresh was. He was Bible 100% of the time the scripture. He taught the King James version, but we also had, there was um, an individual named Pablo who was from, who was Hebrew. So he could read Hebrew, he was Jewish. He could read Hebrew and whenever there was a question on words, we would look them up. We understood the difference. Oh, you know, that some words are masculine, feminine, or neutral in the Hebrew, and, and the Holy Spirit feminine, that kind of thing. So all these things, they took very seriously. They took, if you will, the, the the interpretation of Scripture very, very seriously, what it actually said and meant. But when you're living in that world, you're living in a world that's, you know, 2,000 years ago. That's the Scripture. So a lot of people want to talk about, you know, why did David Crush have so many wives and so many children? Well, within the scripture, if you're a leader or a king, or a great rabbi, um, there, you know, it, you, you could have large families. You could have many wives. You could have many children. That was not something that God frowned on, according to the scripture, according to what the book says. And a lot of people don't realize that David Koresh wasn't just New Testament; he was old and New Testament. He was both, and so he he looked very much as the word of God from Genesis to the New Testament is very much a part of the grand scheme of things and very much a part of his seven seal interpretation and what the book was, the book coming to opened and unsealed and then therefore taught okay So both aspects were very important to him. So again, when you're living within that group you're going back in time. So as you study the scripture and as you start to find yourself changing to try to please God, to try to be, to not eat pork, for example, to try to live the laws of the first five books of Moses, Deuteronomy Leviticus, the laws, you try to do those things while understanding <clears throat> that, you know, Christ says Christ I am come not to do away with scripture, but to fulfill it every jot and tittle, that kind of thing. So it's, you know, it's all in all, it's the book altogether. So when you're living in that world, in other words, you're living in a very different world than the white Western civilization that we have now. So it's, I won't say it's it's easy to get lost, but it's, I don't even know about getting lost. You you think, you know, the, if you The truth is being revealed and this is what God wants you to do and that this is how things have been done for thousands of years. You know, it's not as crazy as people can make it out to be. It's not as crazy as if you're, you know, raised in Massachusetts or or, you know, or New York or or New England somewhere, and you have no idea what the scripture is, and you're just, you know, you understand the Constitution. Well, today, they don't even understand the Constitution. But the point being that, you know, if you're going to public school, <laughs> you're, you're, you're already kind of at a, you're at the back of the bus, if you will, because it's just, there's so much that we are not taught. I think that the education system is the same as it was in the thirties, especially the reading and writing the uh, aspect of the education system. There's no money to change it, so it's not changed. So we're not growing as a people, we're very stagnant. In Most cases I think going backwards. Here I am again, sorry guys, I'm getting a little off the topic here. Did I answer your question after that very long spiel of mine?
1: Well, I do think, yeah, I think you answered it in part, which is to say, I loved hearing about like what the experience was like there. And then I think, um, but I think the, maybe the full heart, heart of my question was like, and then coming out of that, was it like, what were, was there anything that struck you as like? Um, Billboards. <laughs> Billboards? Billboards
3: of half naked girls, flip me right out. And <laughs> because, you know, I, all the, all the women at Mount Carmel had long shirts that went down past their bottoms, long yeah. hair. And I remember being in, in, in L.A. after all this and seeing this big billboard of a woman, very scantily clad, and just going, oh, Babylon. Okay, wow. And that, you know, because I was so used to growing up in that culture, that didn't bother me before. And it's not that it bothered me. It, it was shocking. You know, yeah, I was yeah. living in another realm. And now here's an almost nude woman on a huge billboard for the world to see. And it was a little, it actually kind of brought home the experience quite a bit. In that one billboard
1: that's so interesting
3: if you need a visual that's a pretty good visual yeah also yeah. toys walking through a toy department and seeing all the toys that are kids fantasize <clears throat> that's what playtime is playtime is fantasy that's a big part of growing you want to it used to be cowboys and Indians in my day and then I went to spacemen, and then I went to you know you want to be a fireman or a cop or a good guy or a bad guy right
2: mm-hmm.
3: And then I went to war games, you know, G.I. Joe and all these toys geared for war. And then I started to, when I started to understand the scripture and how mankind is, when I started to understand the things that David was teaching, I couldn't go into a toy store and see it the same way. Mm-hmm. I saw how we are training our kids to be prepared to defend the country and die for us.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And I just looked at things very, very differently. I looked at the subtle manipulations that go on toys are the perfect example, but it goes on everywhere. You know, I mean, chances are if you're using dial soap, it's because you've heard the commercial so many times that you're like, Oh, there's the dial. You don't even think about it. So subconscious. Yeah. I'm just using dial. Don't sue me. Dial. I'm using (laughs) you as an example, (laughs) but you know, we all all have our favorite little jingles that we hear in our head. I used to have a, when I lived in Hollywood, I had a, a roommate who was Swedish and he used to watch the, the American television and he would memorize all the commercials and we'd be driving and he'd go seven 11. Oh, thank heaven. And then he would go AM PM where the thirsty people go. He yeah. would repeat all the commercials and he would see the places and repeat the, And I, I, that's what I, I really started to realize just how powerful it is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting.
3: Yeah.
0: Uh, this is maybe the most uncomfortable question I'll ask. And if, again, if you want me to strike it, we can, um, As I read your book, I think it, it, again, was very successful in creating empathy, not just for you guys, but for David. Um, I ask this, though, because I suspect to this day that this is probably the biggest hang up. And you address it in the epilogue, which for me was a signal that you continue to wrestle it with, was David's own sexual ethic. And so let me unpack that a little bit. Um, You know, like polygamy yeah, I mean, I can, there's cultures across the world now where that's a thing. And, you know, you could even go to par- parts of Utah. So I don't even think that's probably people's biggest objection, but there was the the statutory rape, at least that's what it was viewed by as the legal system. But then beyond that, um, you know, there's that scene where um, in the in the miniseries, David asks you to be okay with being uh, abstinent, you know, for your, your duration there. And I just had wondered, um, you know, I think, here's one way to say it. I think if that part of David's story wasn't part of his story, um, there would be a, a bigger uh, sympathetic look at him retrospectively. So can you, are you willing to talk about how you've processed that since then?
3: Sure, but I'm not willing to get into the scripture of it. That's and, fine. And the, 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 there's, but there's, there's a reason. And the reason is, you know, w- without the inspiration, there's certain concepts scripturally that I think if you get into – <clears throat> then you're kind of making your hero responsible for sure Which we'll is, i'm still wrestling with that because what's happening with me scripturally is like i said i just think that there's so much that we don't know about the true bible and 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 the whole the whole story hasn't been told i'm convinced of that now so that being said um
0: When you say the whole story is not told, you mean about Mount Carmel or about the scripture or about
3: scripture? I I mean the history of prophets, their words being interpreted and specifically important books being left out of the Canon. Okay. Okay. You can call that the Apocrypha. You can call that the Gnostic gospels. You can call that other books that maybe we're not even aware of. I want to know the books we're not even aware of. I'm, convinced they exist somewhere I just really believe I'll even give the benefit of the doubt of this I'm convinced that maybe many things were lost in fires of great libraries sure but we do not there's 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 a huge missing piece of the puzzle of civilization and humanity that, that we just don't get so anyway that was hard that's <laughs> just kidding that said to get to your question, what bothered me okay that's part of that made it truer <laughs> sounds crazy part of that actually made it truer because it's like i was coming to this situation the very spiritual way of looking at things and 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 for me it was a challenge it was like the celibacy thing i felt could not could never happen with me nope not gonna happen if you're I, you're if you're a asking me to do this, you're asking me to fail because I'm 22 or three at the time, not going to happen. So every day was like a challenge and it was a challenge to put myself off the sacrifice that I was making to understand scripture better, to understand this message better. So there was a part of me that I thought that was very interesting and I started to day by day, I guess, come to grips with it actually do, you know, but you know, also the thing the thing with David is he's talking about the, <clears throat> David believed that he was, his message preceded the kingdom being set up. That's an important distinction. Because a lot of people think that his message was an apocryphal one, that we're supposed to all die in this fire and that this is all you know, part of his, well, his message was actually that this group would face being kind of cast aside first and talked about and and judged and and attacked before the kingdom could be set up and that there was a possibility of us not having to face any of that the kingdom could still be set up in our time before what they call the fistiel of the souls under the altar now without getting too into all that so part of that was part of that was putting off of the flesh Realizing if we're coming to that period of time where the kingdom is gonna be set up and everyone's gonna to have to make important decisions, should we actually be, be pre- bringing other people into the world this particular time? Now, I can look at that scientifically and say, you wanna have a big family now, yet global warming is a real issue. And we understand that there's going to be famines and great storms in the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years because of these things that we have done to the world, if you will. So we've already seen examples of this happening at an alarming rate. So does that make David true? It's just, it's it's a, it's a kind of a hard thing to wrestle. So... And I guess I'm not saying it very well. Uh, There's no soundbite for this. You know what I mean? This is an experience that we call the withering experience that each individual that comes to what we call the truth or what the people then call the truth, or if you at the very least want to say following inspiration, um, believe that we would have to go through that experience. So David having the big family and all of that all these kids for for god if you will and what he believed were the 24 elders you know that stuff that kind of you know to me it's like if i hadn't been there and studied the seven seals and seen david kind of intimately if you will i would think this guy is absolutely out just you know have be, be God himself and have as many women as he can. I would, if I weren't intimately involved, I would have believed that a hundred percent. That seems like, you know, the very obvious, um, obvious what, what is, what was going on. That, that's, that would be the obvious way of looking at it. But, you know, the truth is to just, so many scriptures to show that this plan was going to be something that was going to upset people. That was going to be a stumbling block to people. And he, you know, we use those scriptures over and over again, that, that the, the, in the latter days, there'll be a group, there'll be a strange people, a peculiar people, people wondered after there will be a stumbling block. This message will be so, you know, like a lot of, and a lot of these scriptures came back to even prior David. So we're talking George Roden, not George, I'm sorry, Ben Roden, Lois Roden, even Brother Hadif, who was before, you know, Mount Carmel had been out there for 50 years, right? With the, with the people there considered Ben to be a prophet, they considered all these people, Lois Road to be a prophet. And so they all talked of one that would come that would be able to reveal the entire scripture. And right now they had little glimpses of it. And so the people that were following there believed they were following the truth because they were getting insights that other people weren't. So they were these people they were following were inspired to teach. So when David came, he was kind of the culmination of everything that these people said would come, which to me, that was what was really fascinating was talking to some of the old timers and say, we've been waiting for this guy to come. And then then this guy Vernon who, you know, can barely speak well, (laughs) he stutters and he's just like, not the smartest guy, but all of a sudden he starts teaching the scripture in a way that no one could believe. So, you know, the problem I have is if you're Michelle and you're, you know, you have serenity of 14 years old, are you old enough to make that decision for yourself? Uh, No, you know, I don't think you, I think, I think if David in a sense, you know, he brought this on himself as a catch 22 because once he crossed that line, he knew at some point the authorities were gonna be involved in this, you know, so, he made the point to cross that line, but he also talked about that very openly. And he said, I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if someone kills me in my sleep, but God has told me to teach this, to show this. He showed it out of the scripture where and why it's going to happen to the specific group. And then he just went forward and did what the voice, he claimed the voice, told him. And some people left, you know, some people couldn't uh, take that, the Mark bros, if you will, and they left the group. I came in, I was only there for like a year or two. I'd known the group for two years, but I was only in for a year. So I had learned many things very, very quickly. Uh, You know, I was still growing and hadn't really formulated what my life trajectory was gonna be other than I wanted to see this happen. If this was truth and all these things were gonna happen to this guy and this group, even though it was dangerous and I was risking my life, let's just see. You know, it's like, yeah, curiosity killed the cat. Oh, so you're saying the government's gonna attack you because you're living here in the middle of nowhere and you have several wives and you're teaching the scripture that God, they're gonna come in with helicopters and tanks and attack you, sure. That was my attitude as a very, you know, person from the outside. But then it starts happening and then that makes everything even more real and even more true. Mm-hmm. What David said happened. <laughs> Mm-hmm. six months before we're on you know we're up on the roof and we're laying roof t- roof shingles and he says timbs what are you going to do when there's tanks running up the double ranch road I said, that's never going to happen it's america we're not going to bring tanks out here during the siege there's tanks run up and down the double ranch road you're just like okay that's that had not happened before in this country mm-hmm. that was the first you know i think they brought atvs up at, at ruby ridge but certainly not tanks that atvs even just like the, the troop carrier kind of thing yeah it was, it was weird
1: yeah yeah so i think and i think what i think the heart of josh's question or i think what i hear you saying is like so you believe that or um like david was fully invested in these ideas and there wasn't any sense of like um you know, he's, yeah, like, I think you already answered it, but there wasn't any sense of, like, him asking you to be celibate, so there's, like, more for him or something like that. But it's, like, he is making this choice in his interpretation of Scripture. Yeah. Which is, like, I mean, you know, I think I interpret Scripture differently. Um, I mean, I know I interpret Scripture differently, but it's, like, you can't avoid the te- stories that talk about polygamy in the Old Testament. Like, they are there.
2: Everywhere.
1: Um, And so if you have a certain hermeneutic and you're reading it a certain way, it's like, that's where they, that's what they say. Um,
3: well, and there's also cultural things too. I mean, you know, you know, back then women had kids young because you, you needed a big family to survive. You are talking about you living on a farm. You needed, that that was your workforce. (laughs) It's just, it was a completely different way of looking and viewing things that, that we do now.
1: Yes. I'm not exactly. saying
3: it's right or wrong. I'm saying it's what it was. It's Historically, that's how it was.
1: Yeah, for sure. And so, yeah, so, yeah, I don't, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the heart of Josh's question was like, and that was true belief for David. And like in uh, choosing to sort of challenge you about celibacy in that way and his own, you know, decisions to begin having children with, or, you know, sort of this, what was called statutory rape. That was true yeah. belief for him.
3: Yes. And that was also, like I said, before my time, this is another thing most people, I don't know if they realize, and it's, it sounds so like I'm being very defensive here, but the yeah. truth of the matter is, when I came into it, I had no idea what was going on. Mm-hmm. You know, I had gotten to know Michelle. Michelle was a single woman, as far as I knew, who had a, a, a very charming child. Michelle, I was 23. Michelle was my peer i didn't look at michelle as being younger than me she acted more mature than the 23 year olds i knew in hollywood that i knew from the world that i lived in who acted very immature michelle acted like a real woman she didn't act like a little girl so i my friendship with michelle wasn't based on me being friends with a little girl who had a kid with david koresh
2: mm-hmm. it,
3: to be Brutally honest, it wasn't until I did my book that I looked at Michelle's age and was absolutely shocked and had to go, "Oh my god, she was probably 13 when she conceived Serenity, 14 when she had Serenity." So I, you know, that was hard for me to write that.
1: Yeah.
3: The truth though.
1: Right.
3: right. It, it was hard because that's not the girl that I knew.
1: Right.
3: So, you know, Serenity was already 3, which would have made Michelle 17, but again, I had come in, I, you know I I'm not looking to judge people. I'm I, I'm looking to just this is an interesting social experiment that's going on here.
1: Right.
3: There's a scripture, there's women that are having children with this guy and they all believe it and they all seem happy and they all help each other. Nobody seems to be running away or asking for help now. The truth is some of Kresh's wives did leave him. Mm-hmm. And the only reason he has children that are alive today is because of those wives that have left him. So that's a decision that everyone had to make from themselves. Okay. Uh, I just, what I feel bad about is the fact that, you know, Michelle really, her family was in, she had older sisters and brothers that had left were not a part of the group, you know, and they were obviously horrified by everything that happened, but Michelle really didn't have a choice, nor did Serenity. They were, they were born into this. That was their world so i'll just then you know i guess by saying this maybe that's right maybe that's wrong you can look at it any way you want but those kids didn't deserve to be gassed to death because of who their father was and who their mother was and what they chose to believe and what they did believe yeah and if anything the government should have known to to treat them with kid gloves that they should have known that these they they did know I mean, they had experts that wanted to talk to them about the scriptures so they'd have a greater understanding of who they were dealing with. The FBI looked at David Kresh and the group of people as being con men. David Koresh was a con man who'd conned everyone, including his own people. They'd never ever stopped to see that David Koresh believed 100% what he was teaching and what he was doing and what he was saying. And the reason that so many intelligent people, especially the majority of the people who had gone on to further their education, Who were studying at seminary schools, who were studying beyond high school. So, we're not talking about just a select group of people living in ignorance. We're talking about people that have gone on to higher education, believed in David and believed the message because David was 100% real. You don't got to like it, but he was 100% real. He really believed what he was teaching. And that's why so many people believed what he was teaching.
0: Have you ever gotten an apology? From anybody on, you know, the government side, even like yeah. off the record or behind closed doors? No, 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 no,
3: nope. no, especially, um, on the record. but no, not off the record either. That is, they just don't even talk to me. Hmm.
0: Um, do you feel like they still have an eye on you all these years later?
3: Yeah, no, yes and no. I mean, for so many years, I felt that they were going to take me to the dark dungeon room anytime and Start ripping out my fingernails. You know, I just, the worst thing comes in, into your mind. I've surprisingly been left alone, but I think a lot of that is I get to the point where I talked about it for many years. I wrote a book about it and talked about the book, and I got frustrated with people. I got frustrated with. The, I was I was starting to I was starting to have an expectation of being something I didn't want to be. I was starting, people were like, so you're going to be the leader of this right-wing movement. And if you ever go back to music, then you're a traitor. And I'm like, hold on, wait a second. You're putting way too much pressure. I just am a guy that had an experience. I'm not out to lead a revolution. I may cheer the revolution on seeing what I've seen from government. And the power and the force that is used against people needlessly, but I, I I get to the point where I couldn't I couldn't deal with it anymore. There was a two week period actually, this is after I was living in Austin, where I prayed to God every day to go crazy, because I had the survivor's guilt. I had pressure from all these people. I would give a talk, and then it put me to this level that I was uncomfortable with just. I'm a drummer man, that's it, I'm just Dave Thibodeau. I've always just been Dave Thibodeau. And because of my experience, every room I've ever walked in, I've been prejudged. Every room I've ever walked in, there's certain expectations of who I am and what I am that are all in your heads. (laughs) And that's been very, very hard to deal with. And so there was a two week period where I just prayed to God to, Make me go crazy. I just wanted to snap so I could be in the booby hatch somewhere and just get fed the three meals and, you know, uh, watch whatever cartoon was on it that that didn't happen. (laughs) I had every day I had to take the pain of the death of the children. Every day I had to take the anger of the oppressive force of the government. I had to take the being gassed, I had to take the being lied about, all the propaganda about who we were, who I was. Uh, David Thibodeau's a liar, they said on national television. It's like, you call, you guys, you FBI guys are calling me a liar after you lied to the American public. Every day for 51 days, consistently, you're gonna call really? So that's, you know, it got to the point where I just got drunk a lot, you know, I turned to drugs and alcohol, mostly alcohol. And, uh, that really didn't help. So finally came to the point where you just had to look at yourself in the mirror and go, okay, I'm going to have to take this alone. And then you put the bottle down and then you just realized that, oh my God, this is really gonna suck. But that's what life was very much like for a long time.
0: Oh, I can't imagine. Um, winding down here, I did want to ask this. Uh, you had written in the book that you had some proximity to the set when they were making the mini series. Yeah. Um, did you meet Taylor Kitsch, um, and if so, what's he like? Because I'm a big fan. Friday Night Lights, and also uh, Rory Culkin, who I thought just did a great job.
3: Oh, great! They, they were very, they were very interesting and fun individuals. Rory was very quiet, and I kind of we had to go out to dinner a couple times, bring him out of his shell a little bit. I think he was very intimidated at playing a real person, and I didn't realize that that was the thing. I think he thought that I was judging his performance or judging him. And, you know, I never did. I was just happy that this was even being done at all. Uh, I was far more bo- boisterous as a person than Rory was. I think Rory captured a more sensitive side of me. And, it, you know, it was good. I was happy with it. You know, it was, it was, it was fine. Uh, Taylor was, was very fun. It was very serious. So Taylor at the time was fasting <clears throat> to try to keep the weight down to play the role uh, very serious individual. You know, he ran every day and then he would like on the set, he would have rice cakes with um, uh, What is it? Um, oh my gosh, I'm just cottage cheese and That would be his meal because he was, you know, kind of eating very limited calories to keep the size of David For you know And he studied the role very much, you know, I mean, I went over to where he was staying and and we went over some scripture not a lot but you know they're just very serious individuals and i think that they're very um they're very excellent at their craft and so you know they were nice guys we went out we had um drinks one night and there was a blues band that was playing and they allowed me to sit in and taylor was going to go home and i said well i'm going to stay here I, I found out i can play drums with these guys so i'm going to do that and then everyone stayed and i got to play and you know it was, we, had, we had we had some really good times uh Rory, what was really fun about Rory is he was a New Yorker. He'd never driven a car. Huh? And I said, dude, you got to drive a car. Come on. It's the, you're missing like one of the greatest joys in life for me. I love to drive. I love to just, you know, and so we're heading out to the desert where the shoot was, I mean, a 45 minute ride, and I pulled over, and I made him drive and you know, he was driving for a bit it was the first time he'd ever driven a car. I just couldn't believe it. That day he had a scene where he had to drive a car down the road. We didn't know. We had no idea that that was the scene they were filming that day. So it was interesting because he told me later he didn't know if he had been able to drive the car down the road had he not gotten behind the wheel literally an hour before he was to do that. So it's things like that, you know, things just, there was there was a lot of um, divine moments like that that popped up on the set that I thought were very interesting. The people, <clears throat> all of them, Paul Sparks, the gentleman that played Steve Schneider, you know, What's amazing about p- meeting people like that, they're at the top of their game. So they're all thinking, thinking people, they think a lot. So your conversations and go to really cool places because they're wondering about things and how things really work. And they were they were greater defenders of, I think, the The truth that i had been been through my book than i was at the time (laughs) it was it was really interesting they were all making points that i had already made so much over the course of time that were not accepted that i said whatever it is people don't want the truth they don't want the truth there's nothing i can do about that so that was exciting the whole thing was very uh, just a a wonderful experience when i It's the opposite of what it's been for twenty years. It's just this terrible experience. I always tell people, <clears throat> always tell people that my experience, I wouldn't worship I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. Like I could think of two individuals in life that I just they're just terrible people. I've not seen them do anything positive for anyone else. And I'm not saying I hate them, but I just that wouldn't bother me if I never saw them again. Let me put it that way. And that's hard for me to think of anyone like that. But I know a couple individuals like that. I still wouldn't wish my experience on them because of what I've had to go through. But at the same time, I know that I was meant to go through that experience. I know that I was meant to be here to talk, to tell my story and to do what I'm doing right now. And I can't put a price on that. Like if someone were to give me a billion dollars and say, okay, you don't have to go through that experience. I, I couldn't take it. It's, it's my experience is gold to me. It's invaluable. So at the same where I wouldn't wish it on anyone else, I also wouldn't sell it for anything. So it's very precious to me, my experience and what I've been through, what, what God has allowed me to do in my life and to go through. What's tough is feeling so powerless to believe in such a higher power so much and yet have no human power to do anything about it whatsoever. That's tough. You know, like, I wish that there was someone out there claiming the spirit of God could really go into a hospital and heal everyone that could really, you know, just show a real power of God and go and just, Oh, the little kid's got leukemia. We'll take care of that. Lay your hands. They're done. That would be, I mean, wow but that's not how god works that's not how it works down here so i don't know you know that that that, that's it's a wonderful beautiful thought but we have to go through this and i think that in the search for the holy grail it's not in finding the grail it's that journey that's what's important about the 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 holy grail legend is the journey and looking for it is where you find enlightenment, not in finding the grail. So to me, that's just a philosophy I've kind of developed as as to what this life is. It's every day. It's, it's just going on that journey. And even if you'd like daily last night, last night, I'm like, I'm just looking up going, why am I still here? God, I have, I, I have no control over my weight. I can't seem to every time I get to the point where I'm walking my, I put my knee out and I can't move. So there's no balance there for me. And it's just like, it's been a, my weight has been a lifelong struggle. So for me, that's a thing. It's a thing that every day I have prayed and prayed and prayed for power over that. I don't have any power over. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I get very angry at God, not just for that, but for everything. And it's just like, why, you know what? I believe in you so many people believe 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 in you and yet still very terrible things happen to some very good people and some very good bad people get rewarded <laughs> and you just get to the point where it's, it gets very frustrating you know that's it it's, it's it doesn't make me not believe it just makes me very frustrated And i just wish that things could be different and better and i wish that more people could come to god and you know have the power they need to overcome the things they need to overcome
1: yeah yeah i hear that and i i did want to say that um uh that i'm just very thankful for you for being vulnerable with us and sharing your story and experience and also that it sounds like you have a real strength of character that um not everybody has. And so I'm thankful for you for sharing with us. And also that, you know, I, it's, I mean, even your ability to kind of stick through it and um, what a hard thing, to, what an impossible thing to go through. And so I do think it's interesting last night. I've told Josh this story three times already today, but I was meeting with our fifth and sixth graders about suffering Um, and we were just talking about how bad things happen even to good people. And, um, you know, what, you know, what we were talking about is that one of the promises is that God is with us, even in that suffering. And so, you know, it might not be an overcoming, but instead of going through and God being with you. So, um, it's, I do think this is one of the like, um, sort of conundrums of the world right is why do even good people or people who believe in higher power like why do they still suffer and I don't know that it's uh you know that we get an answer to that here um but it sounds like you have found a way to push through some of that and um so I just think that that's really lovely and I'm thankful for you uh to you for sharing some of that with us today
3: thank you very much that's wonderfully said and yeah i mean i just i you know at the end of the day i'm an extremely lucky person and i get mad at myself for not seeing it all the time for you know having the always, always me pity parties that i have sometimes late at night when i'm alone and you know and i hate that because it's like just look at this look just look at the 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 we talked about this a little early before I think the camera was on, but look at the storm we all went through here in Texas. I was in a place we did not lose power. I couldn't imagine. I, I and by the way, I'm down here this winter of from Maine. I've been here the last year or so. I didn't want to go. I was I was going to go back to Maine and help take care of my mother. She's okay enough for me not to for me to be here one more winter, where I didn't have to go through the, you know, 20 degree below zero weather that Maine has in the winter. And yet here I am and it's like the coldest winter in Texas history and the power's out, It wasn't out for us. My point is that I'm very blessed and sometimes it's hard to look on the positive side. I'm trying to do it more. And then and that's a real big challenge. But any, you know, if you went through it and you froze a little bit and you made it through, God bless you, you know, that wow, what a great experience in the sense that now you know what you can handle and what you can take. And hopefully everyone's learned a lesson that we gotta take we gotta take care of ourselves. We can't allow our government, be it local or federal, to take care of us because chances are they're not gonna be there when the when the when the real stuff goes down. So it's good to be resourceful some people had to live without their phones for a little while oh my god that must have been that's <laughs>
0: that's that the real deprivation in america
3: yeah. that that dopamine with withdrawal must have been horrible for a lot yeah. of especially you know tweens and teens and but you made it through guys
0: We made it through well david thanks so much we have sure enjoyed getting to talk with you and you were very vulnerable with us like taylor said And we feel honored that you would take the time
3: thank you very much for having me on guys